Welcome to the Institute of Buddhist Studies podcast. The following is an audio recording of the Red Book Dialogue between Zoketsu Norman Fisher and Richard Stein, held at the Institute of Buddhist Studies in Berkeley, California, on October 22, 2010. Video from this event is available via our website at podcast.shin-ibs.edu. It's lovely to look out and see so many faces. I'm delighted to welcome you to the first of our four racial dialogues. Tonight's dialogue with Norman Fisher and Richard Stone, and the next one on November 12th at the Kabuki Hotel with Jack Cornfield in conversation with Diane Shirley, our co-sponsor with the Institute of Buddhist Studies. Jung called his Lieber Novus, his new book, was written in 1913. When Jung left Freud, a new thing emerged, and that was Jungian psychology. And the Red Book began to show him the way to that new thing. The heart of the Red Book is traveling with Jung into his immersion into his experience of the unconscious through painting, writing, tracking and recording dreams and active imagination. We find ourselves as readers intimately sharing in Jung's struggle to make meaning of his suffering and honor the unfolding of his connection to soul and hopefully we connect that with our own journey, with our own unfolding. A dream, or a waking fantasy, or an experience in therapy, or in meditation, doesn't just restate what we know. It tells us what we don't know. It is a new thing. The heart of the C.G. Young Institute of San Francisco is our commitment to make room for the new thing and to work collectively and individually to create a place for learning, a place to further one's inner journey, and to provide a place to connect Jung's ideas to our present time. We are psychotherapy colleagues from many different disciplines, from psychiatry and psychology and ministry and nursing, who keep coming together to create a place where the soul and the unconscious are welcome. We learn how to use our formal clinical training and sometimes how to temporarily forget that training in order to listen to the new thing that is emerging. These Red Book Dialogues are a new venture for us. The idea for tonight is to bring together two people, Richard Stein and Norman Fisher, who have gone and continue to go on their own deep inner journeys and ask them to connect to Jung's description of his process 
to a passage from the Red Book. Tonight's passage was rather shockingly titled by Jung himself, A Descent into Hell in the Future. It is a difficult section. Our desire is to create an alembic, a vessel, a container, to explore, illuminate different paths that help with the discovery of oneself. Hopefully something that we say tonight connects with your own inner journey, your own wrestling, and your own process. Thank you for being with us tonight. I would also like to thank you for being here this evening, and I would also like to extend my thanks to the CGN Institute of San Francisco, to Ellen as the chair of the development committee, and to all the members of the development committee who have worked very hard to make this event happen. Um, I will take care of some thank yous right now. Linda Shiozaki of the Institute of Buddhist Studies staff, Scott Mitchell, Gail Noguchi, Robert Noguchi, and Glenn Pineda have all worked uh, this evening to make sure that things work smoothly within the building. The Institute of Buddhist Studies is a graduate level program devoted to presenting Buddhist thought to the Western world. Uh, we offer MA level degrees uh, ourselves and in conjunction with the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, uh, and also participate in the doctoral program at the Graduate Theological Union. We're also affiliated with Yukoku University of Kyoto, with whom we close affiliation, including the student exchange program. But the idea of coming together uh, around the topics of the Red Book um, was, in my mind, originally named reading the Red Book through Buddhist eyes. Um, and that describes the, the first two of these meetings, and then we go on to other kinds of eyes reading the Red Book. This evening's speakers are Zogetsu Norman Fisher, who is a poet, um, Zen Buddhist priest of the uh, San Francisco lineage. Uh, he's previously the co-abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center. He's now a senior Dharma teacher there. He's also founder and spiritual director of the Everyday Zen Foundation. Uh, has written several books, uh, including mm -hmm. Taking Our Places, The Buddhist Path to Truly Growing Up, which is available uh, in the bookstore if you don't have it already, I recommend you buy three or four. <laughs> His dialogue partner tonight is Jungian analyst Richard Stein, uh, who's been in private practice in San Francisco for over 30 years. His writings include studies of Sri Aurobindo, Jung's Shadow, the Archive of Initiation, and Jung's Relation to Jung. So I'd like to invite our speakers to um, come forward, and we will get started with this dialogue.
I'm not sure why I was divided because I really don't know anything about psychology or Maybe apples are 
spirit of independence. He was struggling with his own version of that 100 years ago. And as we approach the end of the Mayan calendar in 2012, which will be exactly 100 years from the time of his vision, I think we're struggling with what is the spirit of our time, which seems pretty crazy to a lot of us. And what is the spirit of the depths, which seems to be quite beautiful and emerging in numerous ancient spiritual traditions as well as um, modern hybrids of those traditions. So I just want to put that out as a, a question at the beginning of the dialogues is what, what brings you here? What are your questions? What's your confusion? What's your clarity? Um, because I think what we want to do is Norman and I are going to have an exchange back and forth for a bit and then we will do one of the last part for Discussion. So, what was the spirit of the time that Jung was struggling with in his late 30s? Um, Jung was born into a family that had uh, deep roots in the Swiss Protestant religion, which is a very, very fundamentalist form of Christianity. And a very transcendentally oriented. Christianity. It actually gave rise to the Puritans in England, which then became the Puritan movement in the American colonies. So I think, in a sense, you can trace back from modern Christian fundamentalism back to this church in Switzerland. And Jung's father was a pastor in that church, and he had tentacles and evangelists who were ministers in this church. So there was a heavy dose of Christianity. affected by it in a positive way and also in a rebellious certain um, His father's father was, uh, was a German psychiatrist in the mid-1800s. Uh, Norman asked me at the dinner what did German psychiatrists do in the mid-1800s. I, I sort of cringed <laughs> But Jung did have um, an element of that medical and scientific uh, curiosity in his family. On his mother's side of the family, his mother was uh, mediumistic and uh, had a severe probably postpartum depression after he was born. She had lost another infant a year before. And she had to be hospitalized when he was quite young. So Jung lost that nurturing experienced very early in that for the standpoint of school psychology. And in some ways his father filled in for that, but um, as you'll see when we talk later about his break with Freud, it, it was only partial. And so this mediumistic side, this spiritualistic side, which was very prevalent in Europe at that time, uh, was also very formative in Jung's early life. When he was in college, he spoke to his uh, German beer drinking club of German philosophy, and there's a famous quote where he talks about the soul as an intelligence transcending time and space, which is a very spiritual point of view. And yet, after college, he went to medical school and became an analyst of natural science. Found himself pursuing first, it looked like he was going to do more of a 
straight from medical training. But then he read Kraft Devin's book on psychiatry and got his take in that. So you can see in Young's own life, it's sort of a back and forth between these two folks, one of them spiritual and religious, and the other one scientific and medical. Um, I think at the uh, Redwood Conference at the Institute put on last June, someone mentioned that Jung, not maybe you, that Jung had not kept the dream journal for 10 years. He had kept track of his dreams in their life most of his life up until the 10 year period where he was connected with Freud. So it, it puts the whole question of his abandoning his own soul in a different light. And we'll see that. that he, he had really given himself over to science, medicine. He had done the word association experiments. He worked with psychosis from a medical model. And then he had met Freud and spent seven years really as the star student and heir apparent to Freud's psychoanalysis. And it's interesting because Freud um, in a sense, you could say, used you. Freud was very concerned that psychoanalysis would be marginalized and would be seen as a Jewish science because most of the early followers of Freud were Jewish psychoanalysts. And so here comes Jung, who's already got quite a reputation of his own um, as, as a psychiatrist in Zurich and the school of Eugene Boiler. He's not Jewish, and he's very smart, and he's very ambitious. And it was sort of a marriage made in hell. <laughs> because it served Freud's purposes, and it served Jung's ambition, uh, both of their ambitions. And at the same time, there were very, very fundamental differences between them. The other thing that was going on is that Jung never analyzed formally with Freud, and Freud never analyzed with anyone. Other than himself. So there was a, a lack of understanding of containment, of um, what we today talk about as the brain or boundaries. They did trips together, they did uh, vacations together, they corresponded, uh, they referred patients to each other. So when the break came, it was a huge break. It wasn't uh, an, a, a bad end to an analysis, it was a bad end to a whole lot of things. And basically what happened is that Jung was having experiences himself, dreams himself, uh, insights with patients, theoretical thoughts that were expanding beyond what was acceptable to Freud. And uh, the frictions boiled over. Uh, in 1911, Jung wrote a book, uh, there were two papers that preceded it, in which he treated the psychotic fantasies of the patient as meaningful. And he found that the meaning in the hero's myth and that the denouement, um, you could say, of that myth was the death of the hero. In the introduction, the introductory chapters, he talks about two kinds of thinking, which he called rational thought, which is what we normally think of when we say thinking. But another kind of thinking, the unconscious does, that he called mythopoetic thought. And all of this was outside the bounds of Freud's theory could set. It wasn't just the um, sexual theory, it was the whole idea that there's an intelligence in the unconscious, which harkens 
December of 
tell in the picture because it's where he sees the murder who's the hero. And that sacrifice is Jung's own sacrifice of his role as the hero position in the cycle of the world. Um, well, I put a pause there and there's a lot more we can say about that. Right? But the book he wrote that precipitated the book ends with a chapter called The Sacrifice. It's before things got so heated between him and Troy. And he later wrote in his autobiography that he knew when he wrote that chapter that it was over. And that what he was saying in conclusion of that book was something Troy wasn't going to accept. Now I think the other thing that is important in terms of contextualizing the Red Book is that Young wasn't the only one feeling what was going on in the deep psyche. There were other poets, there were artists. Uh, it was the breakdown of the classical art, even of physics, in terms of relativity theory and quantum theory. There's a whole paradigm shift going on uh, during that couple uh, of centuries leading up to World War One, and Jung was one of many people who were sensing it. So I think there was a kind of singly or synchronicity between what Jung was experiencing. Poets and artists were in touch with. I think T.S. Eliot's Wasteland touches on some of the same issues. And that zeitgeist was the spirit of the times that Jung began with when he started the, the first passage. And what he says there is that he had become a, you know, a servant, you can say, that the spirit of the times. And what had erupted from the deep unconscious was the spirit of the depths. So from the very beginning of the Red Book, he's positing a pair of opposites that are in conflict. And that is one of the main tenets of all the young psychology. That there are opposites that need to be separated out in the psyche that need to be understood. You need to hold the tension between the opposites and find the peace between them and between the integration. And I think it's one of the places where the, um, where we can imagine in a way, Buddhism touching upon the thinking because it posits in a little way that, that the resolution isn't the victory of the ego of the unconscious or the resolution of the complexes. It's actually finding an accommodation between these two very powerful forces in the psyche. Symbols of transformation of these two kinds of thinking in the Red Book is the spirit of the times and the spirit of the death. And much later, at the end of his life, when he wrote the spirit of the beyond us, he elaborates that whole process. The subtitle of that book, which was in the 1950s, published in 54 55, is the separation and synthesis of the analysis. So without knowing that he was laying out in the Red Book what was to be the major theme of his life. And um, I just wanted to read this. I think Norman's going to read the, the full section. But here's another example of what he does with the opposites at the bottom of the front page of the sheet. Life does not come from events, but from us. Everything that happens outside is already dead. This meaning of events is the supreme meaning that is not an event and not in the soul, 
But it is the God standing between the events and the soul, the mediator of life, the way, the bridge, and the going across. Blood 
thick red blood springs up, surging for a long time, then ebbing. I am seized by fear. What did I see?
it would merge with the large part. I thought that upon the merger of the waters, fish, turtles, and so forth could traverse to a small pond. Then it seemed that it was the fifth day of the second month. Tonight, I thought, the moon will rise over this pond. Then it surely will be splendid. So, I don't know what you think of this, but to me, the, the tone and the sense and the feeling of these two sets of dreams seem completely different from each other, completely and utterly different. Um, now, personally, I'm not a great dreamer. You know, I don't, I don't I must say, I don't remember my dreams. There was a time uh, when I would um, write down my dreams. I Probably a short period of my life, a long time ago, and I don't remember why I did that. It was my idea of doing that, but I can remember the experience of uh, waking up, uh, you know, in the morning with the dream still in my mind. And I'm sure many of you have done this right now. And writing down what the dream was, and being very conscious of the fact when I was writing the dream down that I was improving the dream or somehow altering the dream in the writing of it. But somehow that seems like that made sense to do that because somehow the dream was being completed. So that the dream that I wrote down was a kind of collaboration between something that I was experiencing at night and something in my half wake momentary getting up. So this was uh, a very different kind of experience, though, uh, from the feeling that you get from the women's visions. Young's dreams, compared to Jung's, seem pretty tame, don't they? I think it's pretty neat and uh, contained by comparison. And especially, um, which is, you know, setting the tone for us in the context. Pretty clearly, Jung was going through a lot at that period. And so um, the dreams that he was having reflected his turmoil and whatever it was, the darkness of his vision. Really passionate vision, really lurid vision. By comparison, the always dream seemed to be more or less a matter of fact continuing at night in the spiritual practice that he's doing during the day. It's almost like you could, these could almost be like not dreams, but this is what happened to me. Almost. So there seems to be, you know what I mean, the contrast between you can imagine Jung sitting there dealing with this material, then getting up and going to his office and being a proper Swiss doctor, a very responsible, respectable person, really putting a lid on all this stuff, he always seems to be just doing the same thing at night that he's doing during the day. And, I, and I'm thinking to myself that my own dreams, uh, as I remember them from those days when I wrote them down, and, and as I occasionally remember them since, if I think about them, they actually seem to me to be more like knowing and they do like those dreams. Maybe this is because uh, 
Leading to 
more balanced way of holding the office since that's a lot of sense to me. But I, I don't think it's true of the landscape. It's actually one of the questions I think would be really interesting for us to get into tonight is what is the spirit of the times? And is the spirit of the times uh, something that's conscious that we all know, or is it something also? Because I think when you initially read the Bible, then you think, well, you know, the spirit of the times, it's like the zeitgeist and all of that is Facebook and Sarah Maryland. We have icons that we put out there and talk about it as though that's what is reality. But it's actually something in the unconscious. It's, it's not something that's out there. There are manifestations of it out there. But I think that, that both the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths are things that are out there that are in the unconscious and the forces moving us. Yeah. yeah, that's good segue to this next part that I'm going to read. From the Red Book, which is a really big book. Not as big as any of the briefcases that I have. But this actually, we said, and we talked about this earlier, it is really the most amazing and fascinating part of this whole story is that um, this was the moment uh, right before World War I. And World War I, I think, was a really the most devastating event ever. Because that was sort of the end of Europe as Europeans had learned. Uh, and in a way, everything that happened afterward was a continuation of that. And maybe you could say that what's going on now is yet another, yet, yet a further continuation of this sort of devastation of all of a sudden a life that seemingly felt like it made some sense and had some integrity, whether it did or not, I don't know. The, the feeling that it did suddenly was completely destroyed. And the fact that not only young, but as Richard said, um, many, if not all, of the people who were involved in the arts and the culture were going through and interested in the same kind of uh, imagery and disturbance. And then, the war happened. Uh, it, it really, and, and that's what this passage is about, the, the, the cousins between uh, what goes on inside, deep at the bottom of the heart, and what, and what is going on in the world out, out there. And uh, I mean, on one, on one hand, this is very obvious, I remember, we care about the world, we have dreams and thoughts and images about what's going on, we're disturbed and so on. But, but the idea strikes me that, and I think this is what Dylan is trying to say in this passage, that it actually goes both ways. In other words, what we're experiencing at the depth of our psyches may not just be a kind of rational, linear reaction to what's going on around us, but it actually may be in some deeper way actually connected and mutually causing what goes on around us. And so that, and then I think that's what we want to eventually get to with all of us together from exploring this question. So can we understand more deeply, below the level of chatter, what's going on out there? 
vitamins did. And again, the lower level of the chatter and superficial issues, what's going on with us? And could, and could affect the one, affect the other. And that's what seems to be the prospect that opens up here, considering this. So what I mean, uh, this is a, a, the whole version. It's not too much. It's, it's a little bit longer than what you excerpted on your page. This uh, appears in the talus, which means it's from the, from the, original, from the original visions. Um, therefore, Whoever considers the event from outside always sees only that it already was, and that it is always the same. But whoever looks from the inside knows that everything is new. The events that happen are always the same. But the creative deaths of men are not always the same. Events signify nothing. They signify only in us. We create the meaning of events. The meaning is and always was artificial. We make it. Because of this, we seek in ourselves the meaning of this, so that the way of what is to come <coughs> becomes apparent, and our life can flow again. That which you need comes from yourself, namely, the meaning of the event. The meaning of events is not their particular meaning. This meaning exists in learned books. Events have no meanings. The meaning of events is the way of salvation that you create. The meaning of events comes from the possibility of life in this world that you create. It is the mastery of this world and the assertion of your soul in this world. The meaning of this is the supreme meaning. That is not in this, and not in the soul, but is the God standing between events and the soul, the mediator of life, the way, the bridge, and the going across. The mysterious passage is not exactly clear. What he's talking about, and you know, he wasn't. But that's the passage that is um, in the original. So I don't think Bill himself at the time created that passage, knew it, uh, whatever else he was thinking about or talking about. So this is a big incentive, right? Myself to want to uh, have a more uh, have a deeper access and were kind of considered almost like, shouldn't we be spending time on this? Shouldn't we be, you know, ordering things online less and more, <laughs> figuring out, you know, what is really going on with us 
as individuals, as individual lives, we build a network and then we build the world and then we shape the world. So that's kind of interesting. And uh, then my next uh, thing I was thinking about was that it's possible for me that that the reason why I'm not so uh, I don't have so much uh, imagery or I'm so aware of my dreams these days is because uh, I write. And, uh, and I think that in a way it's possible that my approach to poetry is functioning, is doing that function for me. And so uh, that was a great excuse for me to read you some poems. <laughs>
synthetic hydrogen and the green building sector. I want to read you a little from this letter here. <laughs> Young was pissed. <laughs> if you read the if you read the letters leading up to it, there's all this sort of formal institutional stuff. Your guys don't like me anymore. Somebody writing back, you know, Freud writing back, you know, if you had more objectivity, you'd see this complex. So um, he writes to him, Dear Professor Freud, may I say a few words to you in earnest? I admit the ambivalence of my feelings towards you, but I'm inclined to take an honest and absolutely straightforward view of the situation. If you doubt my word, so much the worse for you. I would, however, point out that your technique of treating your pupils like patients is a blinder. In that way, you produce either slavish sons or Indian puppies. And he mentions Hopper, Steckle, and Poland, my gang now throwing their weight about in the end. I understand enough to see through your little trick. You go around sniffing out all the symptomatic actions in your vicinity, thus reducing everyone to the level of sons and daughters who blushingly admit the existence of their faults. Meanwhile, you remain on top as the father, sitting pretty. For sheer obsequiousness, nobody dares to pluck the prophet by the beard. And for once, what you would say to a patient with a tendency to analyze the analyst instead of himself, you would certainly ask him, who's got the neurosis? You say, well, I don't know if you want to hear the whole thing. <laughs> this is young, really. And if you read the letters that preceded, they're all very formal and polite, but strange. You see, my dear professor, so long as you hand out this stuff, I don't give a damn for my symptomatic actions. They shrink to nothing in comparison with the formidable being in my brother Freud's eye. I'm not in the least neurotic, but you wouldn't. And I'm submitted, in this long Latin phrase, to analysis, and in a much better form. You know, of course, how far it get, a patient gets with self-analysis, not out of this neurosis, just like you. If you ever should rid yourself entirely of your complexes and stop playing the father to your sons, and instead of aiming continually at their weak spots, took a good look at your, your own for a change, then I will mend my ways and at one stroke uproot the vice of being in two minds about you. You love your lives enough to be always at one with yourself, but perhaps you hate your lives. In that case, how can Expect your efforts to treat your patients leniently and lovingly, not to be accompanied by someone with feelings. Adler and Steckel were taken in by your little tricks and reacted with childish insolence. I shall continue to stand by you publicly while maintaining my own views, but privately you shall start telling you in my letters what I really think of you. <laughs> I consider this procedure decent. No doubt you will be outraged by this particular token of friendship, but it may do you good all the same. <laughs> with best <with> regard. <laughs> so it, it lightens all of this up in a way to see its normal human behavior. <laughs> And that was actually one of the best pieces of writing in the room. <laughs>
So what he's referring to there is this knowledge he already had of the Katsuyokanji. That's the passage that I copied out that's on the back of the quote. And what it's basically saying, and, and this goes back to the Vedas, um, if you think you're the one who's slain, you don't know. If you think you're the one who did the slaying, you don't know. It is not either the slayer or the slain. And Jung does something very interesting with this in the 1942 passage cited here, which is that he discusses the same idea in terms of the sacrifice of Isaac, or in what in the Jewish literature, literature is called the binding of Isaac. And I'm sure you all know this story. It's painting with uh, God. Well, let's start with Abraham. Abraham overthrows the multiplicity of idols from the patriarchal world that his father is working in. And Abraham becomes the founder of monotheism. He finds the one God who's invisible. And in doing so, he sacrificed the, the polytheistic uh, patriarchal life of the, the religions of the Middle East. And at some much later point, he and his wife Sarah, who's 90, that had no children, He's had a previous child, Ishmael, with one of the maid servants. But he finally has his own son and his own wife. And, you know, she's 99, uh, or something. Um, so this child, Isaac, is extremely precious to both of them. And when God tells Abraham to sacrifice his only son, he's not only telling him to kill his child, who's precious to him, but he's telling him that he's voiding a promise he made that his seed will multiply. He's a, this is his only child and he sacrifices his child. So it's this huge sacrifice. And it's in the context of that story that Jung says um, the sacrificer and the sacrificer one. Abraham, in being forced to kill his son by God the Father, is sacrificing what he wants. It's not only that he's going Son. So it's in the, the Indian materials in the background of this comment on the biblical material. And one of the things I found out looking into this is that in the Talmudic commentaries and, uh, on the dates and the age of Sarah and so forth, Isaac, we, we always think of him as a kid, right? Isaac was 37. And in 1912, Jung was 37. So the unconscious is sort of lining up these uh, archetypal and personal truths. And what, what intrigued me in looking into these two references about the sacrifice is the contrast between the Indian story and the biblical story. The biblical story is very personal, and it is forced by God on high on Abraham sons from the top down. Um, the kata, Upanishad, the kata Upanishad from the, these verses come from the second chapter. Well, what the story is that's going on now is uh, the story of Nakashitas. And there's an old man who's got two very sickly cows and he wants to make a sacrifice to Yama. Of death. And his son, who's 12 years old, looks at these cows and says, you know, what kind of sacrifice is that? Don't you have anything valuable? 
the sacrifices of the Lord that you know, he says, no, this is all I have, and the son says, you have me. I offered myself to death. And in doing so, he shames his father, and his father's angry at him. And he goes to the house of the Lord of death, who saw killing people, just what he does. And the, the people, you know, the hosts, the you know, other helpers of death, are so impressed with the kid that when Yahweh comes back, they say, you know what, he came here on his own voluntarily, he wants to sacrifice himself to you. And Yahweh is so impressed that he says, I'll grant you three thrones, which is yeah. Um, so being being Indian, this is what he asked for. The first one kind of makes sense. He wants to be returned to his father and have his father not be angry. That seems like a kind of reasonable ego level. Well, second one, this is Indian. He wants immortality. <laughs> Go right for it. And the third one, he wants, and and Yama grants the second one without any argument. But the third one is that he wants to understand when a man dies, does he cease to exist or not? And Yahweh says, well, wait a minute. You know, the gods argue about this. Everybody's got to think that it's too much. You know, most <laughs> and he and Sinny offers him, you know, dancing girls and money. <laughs> and he says no to that, and he holds his ground. So Yahweh does reveal this teaching, and it's in this teaching that he says it is neither one who is slain or the slain. That's what this comes from. So it is a teaching about immortality, it's a teaching about the nature of the sacrifice, and it's a teaching to me about the fact that in the East, certainly in India, surrender is something you do voluntarily. It isn't coming from the highway to prove Abraham onto you. So I have been fascinated for a long time with Jung's relationship to India and to yoga and to Buddhism. And to me, this is another piece of the puzzle in terms of understanding how fundamentally Judeo-Christian his attitude towards the self is. He says at the end of Mysterium Communion, in the final chapter, he says, the experience of the self is always a defeat to the ego. That's the psychological translation of this. So it, it was just mind-blowing to me to find this this early in the Red Book. Young was already both partly knowing of these things and partly it's working in the subconscious through the sacrifices relationship to Freud and, and also the murder of the secret. And, and the, the, the their sacrifice of all is Jesus. Yeah, well, the, so Isaac is the prototype. Yeah, Isaac is the prototype of Jesus. So, and Jesus in sac being sacrificed is immortal. So that must have been part of his <coughs> sense of the sacrifice as well. I don't know if he touches that, but mm -hmm. that was so much part of his life. Well, in this reference to uh, Abraham and Isaac, it occurs in a, uh, as the long essay he wrote called The Transformation Symbolism of the Mass, and that's exactly what it goes with yeah. that Jesus is Christ and God and man and God is sacrificed. <laughs> so I, I, I wanted to sort of expand the, you know, this personal story of Young's sacrifice, you know, the psychological story of how he was dropped and then 
cultural story for the change in the paradigm of the zeitgeist. So I think this gives it an even deeper uh, spiritual and archetypal context. Before you spoke about uh, the regression, that's, sorry, thank you. Before you spoke about the regression, that's how I thought of it. But I also thought that as I was listening to reading the dream or the passage, the experience of being in the womb, intrauterine, came up for me very strongly. And I thought of the mother's grief mother's depression and what she was what she was bearing as was within her and how he talks about returning to the to what has happened before uh, to events repeating and I thought about how this precipitation of loss per, per, the the break with Floyd precipitated not only the separation from the father and the father slash mother that the father had, but the mother also um, and both uh, that and also how he might have carried his dead sibling. Thank you. Uh, I think that really uh, adds a lot of you know, in the two essays on analytic psychology, which was really the first thing he wrote after the, the first public writing in volume seven, there's a place where he talks about the regression going back not only to childhood, but in utero, which Ron was already talking about, and from there back into ancestral memories, i.e. the archives. So I think that cave in, in the uh, Red Book is that. It's his mother's womb, it's where this that occurred, and it's also the gateway to something archival. So it was really out of his own experience of all of that that, that this theory emerged. And that's been one of the amazing things to me about the Red Book. You know, he said it in his autobiography, people have said it for years. Everything I did later came out of this. And you're sitting there reading it, and you're going, oh, yeah, that's volume this. And you know, and you can just see the ideas unfolding in this symbolic form. And he really did spend the rest of his life giving in shape and articulating. But you, you've added a, a piece we weren't talking about that it was really important. Um, when you first began, you said something about um, that you felt in some ways Indian um, psychology and the meditation were similar and in other ways completely opposite. And I practice both meditation and I also, I guess, I practice studying Jung. And I'd like to hear more about what you, what you think about how it's similar and how it practices. Well, I, I guess it's similar in that uh, in both cases you're trying to uh, see beyond ordinary, everyday mundane living to a deeper level of your of your life, of your experience. So in that they're, they're similar. You could say they're different pathways or techniques toward going deeper with your own experience. To, to a level where 
you are no longer able to exactly figure out or define your experience. But the difference is that, um, and especially it's, it's so clear in the case of the Red Book where it's entirely um, symbolism, imagery, the level of the archetype. Uh, in, in Zen meditation, unlike, say, Tibetan Buddhism, which does have its own system <coughs> archetypal material um, that is sort of systematically worked with and so on, in, in Zen, uh, at least as far as I understand or know about it, um, it doesn't so much engage that level of imagery. In fact, you know, in the little meditation we did, the instruction is whatever arises, notice it, but don't do exactly what Jim did. Go into it. Go into it and see, you know, step by step where it takes you. And this is the opposite. This is like, don't go into it. It's not saying, it's not saying like avoid it or get away from it or like be scared of it. It's just saying, don't go into it. What do you go into instead? You go instead you go into being present with the momentary situation, with the actual feeling of being alive right now. And the presence that you feel in the body, in the breath, in the heart, in the mind of being alive. This is what it feels like to be alive. Whatever else comes up, that's coming up, that's part of the moment of being alive, but now I'm going to let it go and refresh for the next moment. So it's a radically different uh, sort of approach. But uh, but certainly, you know, I've had in, in meditation, you know, some pretty powerful experiences. You have an image, let's say, arising, you know, that had a lucrative effect. But I wasn't exploring and going into it. I was just coming back to presence. And, and, and that's, in a way, you know, it's a really, it's a really you can say that uh, those are also very different ways of living, right? On one hand, there's pursuing and being interested in what arises within you in a certain way. And on the other hand, there's just letting everything come and go and going forward. Uh, in both, both ways could be very deep ways of being in touch deeply with oneself, but in very pretty different modes. So that's what I, I think what I had in mind. Because I was pretty amazed you know, <coughs> and thinking, wow, this is not how I think. <laughs> I just want to ask, uh, just put it out of comment from what you just said. Would you consider that the spirit of the times? What, what spirit? The way you, you talked about um, not going in. Uh, well, I was speculating that maybe so, but Richard said no. It can't be both. And I know for sure of people who are doing the same practice and they're also doing young analysis. Yeah. And I must, so they must be holding it in a different way. There are, and yeah. And it, very interesting conversations about yeah. the whole mode. Um, and, and I think you can do both. Yeah. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. The other thing I have to say about the people I've worked with who are practicing service is there's a razor sharp focus on the dreams. They, they, it's like yeah. Once they get it, that there's meaning in the dreams, it's just in things for very quickly. Yeah, and I've and I heard many reports of it various you know, people that I practice in with and people who are psychotherapists and so on saying that the process of meditation can really help your work in 
the self is a really um, kind of large role, not the self as the ego, yeah. but as the self that is the center yeah. of personhood or whatever you want to call it. Whereas in Buddhism, there's this whole concept of anatta and no self. So I've been actually wrestling with this for quite a few years and trying to Sometimes I feel like, oh, this is impossible. There are two different things, and they're totally irreconcilable. And other times I think, oh, maybe there is some way of bringing them together. So I would just like to hear your particular take on that, if you have one. Well, you know, in Zen, uh, the terminology of anatta isn't that much used. In fact, uh, various expressions that are the equivalent of self so true self, you know, original face, Buddha nature, things like that are uh, the way that the that same teaching of anatta is understood or expressed in Zen. So it doesn't feel in a way that far from, from uh, you know, but I think one difference, and this may speak to what we were talking about a minute ago, going deeply into the psyche versus letting things come and go. That is that the self in Zen, the true self, the original face, is uh, you know one's deepest, inmost personhood, and is non-different from the whole world. So in other words, you you are my true self. And what happens in Afghanistan is my true self. So, so it's not my true self, it's not something at the bottom of me, right, that's exclusive to me. Or even like my dual piece of real estate in a collective unconscious or something like that. It's, it, it, it is the world itself. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, so there's a kind of non-difference between the world and the psyche. That's one of the, because uh, the, the not, not, no self part of the, of uh, the Buddhist way of looking at things means um, just things coming and going. Impermanence, just that things come and go. That that is who I real what I really am. If I really get to the bottom of what I really am, what I really am, and that things come and go. And they come and go right here in this place. But it's the coming and going and everything that is my deepest self. Something like that. I'd like to interject something about that. Um, the section I mentioned in the transformation and symbolism of the mass uh, in volume 11 and a footnote, Jung says that if I have an experience of the self, because the self has an antinomial nature, I immediately have to posit the non-existence of self. And 
is basically saying the same thing. Yeah, Buddha said the same thing. Yeah, yeah. 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 get to that, you can't own it, you can't claim it. And in other places, when he, he talks about the Innus Mundus, the one world, the self does connect in the same way you were saying that. You know, I don't have Janice is also happening here. So I, I think the other thing that's important, that I just want to interject about an overview of Jung's life and work, is that it's sort of, in his professional life, there are really three different periods. There's the period of psychoanalysis and science and the break with Freud, and then what we're looking at, the red book. And those visions like the groundwork for the major portion of the next 30 years. In 1944, he had a near-death experience and equally powerful visions that didn't last as long. And uh, in this near-death state, went out of the body and had an experience in sort of universal mind. And his writing changed after that, and his position on a lot of these issues changed. So I think with Jung, you have to really look at what you're reading and when he wrote it. I always look to see the date or something, because there are these major breaks. And I think that late Jung is not that different. Was it after the second uh, near-death experience that he was, um, I think, maybe this was in your paper that you sent me that, that he um, had to you know, talk himself into and to come back, back to, to life, yeah. because it was very uh, uh, tempting, not in a morbid way or in a way of like get me out of here, but more like in a way of this would be the real fulfillment. You know, into that this would be the fulfillment of all this death and all these symbols and all this work. But I won't do it. I'll, I'll come back and I'll continue in life. That was yeah. yeah. That was Yeah. So we have like 10 more minutes and uh, well, we
they stick themselves onto larger questions that come later and feed them. The motivation's wrong. Which belief controls it? In the end, hearing is reflexive. No machine can register what's only proposed. Head straight for the decision points. Eliminate the detail in between. None of that makes a person. Everything's displacement. Condensation of expansive defeat coils right there in the poached center is the starting path. Let fling the extras where the point meets the exile, there's forgetting. It's up to someone else to interpret your life. They've got it in their pockets like lint. Turn your head that way. Don't try to remember any of this. I can already read my mind. Weeks. Uh, Monday. Time to find one double. Tuesday. A dream of fire. Wednesday. A discussion of possibilities. Thursday. All political arrangements flat and shattered daylight by now. Friday. All the Saturday. Commanded. Meaning is closed. Sunday, harsh desert heat is the mind range for base signifying them. Tuesday, winter has not arrived. Wednesday, flash of innovation around the eyes. Thursday, already by now thinking of doom. Friday, newly finished and shop. Saturday, command meaning not to be depicted. Anyway, Sunday, outside all available channels, Monday, because of crimes. Wednesday, absolutely no rhythm. Thursday, surprising that you like this. Friday, surely by now I sense that the wolves being pulled over your eyes. Saturday, commanded, meaning absolutely still. Sunday, Disasters come in pairs. Monday, somehow you deserve this. <coughs> Tuesday, so many fingers it's impossible not to take them in and so be chained. Thursday, heartache. Friday, considering the origins of the timetables. Saturday, commanded, being inserted anyway outside it all nowhere. Sunday, confusion of identity swirling around all that. Monday, bearing the weight of being, which is always lonely. Tuesday, two planets, side by side in the dark night. Wednesday, hate, fate, or debate. Friday, in my end is my beginning. Saturday, commanded, furiously. Sunday, hardly able to proceed. Monday, debated, but without any means to reach provisional conclusions. 
Tuesday, termination. Wednesday, entirely lacking any bones. Thursday, ending in midstream. Saturday, commanded insatiably. Sunday, proceeding according to determinations. Monday, having then to make something so that something else can go on. Tuesday, stars as they are in the sky. Wednesday, underlying sound of bells like a breakwater. Thursday, heartfelt fears causing you to back away and remain apart. Friday, straining for the ever-present beginning. Sunday, time could be arranged in any way. Monday, music has no structure. Tuesday, disdainful. Wednesday, overreaching. Thursday, orchid. Friday, sorrow. Saturday, commandment. Uh, this one I just wrote the other day uh, called Love That's Green. Love That's Green. It's bad to read poems that you just wrote the other day. Uh, you should let them sit for a while and see if they're good. Love That's Green. Love that's green <clears throat> covers what's black, yet the black's desire brings green's hue, so luxury's back to spread thin. Red love loves blood <coughs> spilled or circulated, dries black or is moist. Love's water, flower, or leaf is love's death. Does love die to be love, or is love as green, never black, and can't be green at all? Or greenest, when black, as leaves and flowers will be, when finally faded. Or love reappears as such, when each green life fades and nourishes new blood in further seasons, as may be. Is love red, black, or green? Do we shrink, fade, or grow? As we're alive in love, or love's alive in us. Again, thank you all for being here and uh, please join me in expressing our appreciation.